Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. So the title of my sermon is Marriage Advice. Ask Paul. And let me read from the 10th verse through uh, about the 15th, 16th verse, I believe, just to give us a, a rolling start. And I, there's too much scripture here for me to read the entire remainder of the seventh chapter, so I will be referring to the scriptures following that as well as I continue in my sermon, uh, but I'm not going to read them. You'll just kind of have to acquaint yourself with this chapter, and we'll start off with talking about the issue of marriage and a, a couple of different scenarios of people who are married, then we'll end up with Paul talking about single people and widows. So starting in the 10th verse, Paul says, but for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. That, that means it's emphatic. It's not his opinion. It's what the Lord says. A wife must not leave her husband. Then he deals with this practical situation. But if she does leave him, so isn't that interesting? You must not do it, but if you do. In other words, there's consequences. The command is you shouldn't do that. But how many of you know that people tend to break commands all the time? So he says, if you do, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And then he flips the issue and says, and likewise, the husband must not leave his wife. Now, I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. So he's preempting this with a different approach. The first one is, this is not my opinion, this is what God says. Now he says, this is my opinion, this is not what God says. Everybody has an opinion, right? I do not have a direct command from the Lord. But from his wealth of wisdom, he gives the following advice. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to continue to live with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving... Let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might 
be saved because of you, and don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you. Now, that passage is about twice as long as it needed to be because every time Paul said something in behalf of the wife, he said it in behalf of the husband as well. So we repeat it a lot there. But at least we get the clear indication he's, this is not just unidirectional. It applies to both. Question number one. Dear Paul, my husband and I are both believers, but our marriage is struggling. I thought I was safe marrying within my faith, but I have now discovered that even Christian couples can face some hard challenges in their relationship. I'm so disappointed and have seriously been thinking of leaving my husband. It just doesn't seem we were meant for each other. There is no chemistry. Is there any way for me to get out of this dead-end relationship? Signed, Deep Regrets. Paul writes back, Dear Deep Regrets, I'm going to give you the same command the Lord gave. This is the way it is. You have no grounds to dissolve your marriage, not with the circumstances you have shared. You can't just get unmarried because you're unhappy. That's not grounds. The wife can't leave the husband. The husband can't leave the wife. Work it out. Now, people, marriage is hard work. Relationships are messy. Sometimes people avoid relationships because of the pain that they experience in relationships. And so they shut people out. They become emotional hermits. They won't let anybody get close to them. They're afraid of loving because they're afraid of the pain. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe you can think of people to whom that applies. They just won't enter a relationship. They've been hurt. But the fact of the matter is, it's a package deal. There is no relationship that you can have with somebody that doesn't come with some pain. And you have to understand, in order to have the love and the relationship, you have to be willing to accept the difficulties that go along with it. You can't just have the good and not accept the fact it comes with some challenges. Marriages and relationships can go from pleasant to miserable in about 10 seconds. You can be so happy, and in just a few moments... You're in a fight. You're angry. You don't want to be in the same room with each other. How do things change that fast in relationships? Anybody who thinks marriage is supposed to be 90% bliss got some bad advice somewhere along the line. Or they've been reading too many romance novels. 
They're under the wrong impression. It is hard work. So both Jesus and Paul address this, and, and they emphasize the fact that marriage was intended by God to be a lifelong commitment to one person. That's why you have to be very careful in making choices. You're committing yourself to a relationship not on a trial basis. You're committing yourself to a relationship for the rest of your life. You've accepted the challenge of working on that. Now, I've seen people who were planning to get married, and all the evidence was there in front of me that they were embarking on a high-risk endeavor. Now, I, I, can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you for a fact that people who are getting married are either going to have a perfect marriage or it's not going to work. All I can tell you is risk assessment. That's about all I can do. There are indicators when people come and talk to me about wanting to get married, and when we talk to them and we assess them, we can put them in a category and say, well, you've got about 10% chance of survival. And to those people that are in love, that just seems like the odds are in their favor. 10%, we're going to make it. They're not hearing what I'm saying. The odds are against you. Look elsewhere. Do some changing. Grow up. Do something you're not entering in wisely. But then I remember marrying one couple that to that point in my life and in my ministry, they seemed to be the most perfect couple I had ever met and and I told him I said I've, I've never met anybody who just had such high marks you, you two are just it's it's all but perfect and of course they're they're still married today and they've got a beautiful family but they hit some rocks along the way and one of them ended up having an affair on the other and this was the perfect marriage that they, as they sat there, and, they, and it wasn't just a matter of answering questions. I knew their lives. I knew their personalities. And I thought, if anybody is able to get along and make a successful marriage, these two can. But they really had some rough things that they went through in their marriage. So you, I can't, see, I can't predict those things. But people tend to make bad choices because they're desperate. They... They make bad choices because they panic about their singleness and they make hasty decisions in choosing a marriage partner. And even widows and widowers have been known to, known to make marriage choices out of loneliness and a desire for security that doesn't always work out well. I, I've seen this a number of times. In my ministry, somebody has a spouse die and they're so horribly lonely that they end up getting married too quickly because they have to fill that lonely spot in their life. So one of the most important factors in making this good choice in marriage is at least start off with believers marrying believers. 
That alone is going to eliminate a basket full of problems, but that alone is not going to eliminate all problems. Any couples here today that are Christian couples, you can help bear out testimony to this truth that just being Christians doesn't in itself make a marriage perfect. It only gives you a better chance at having a good marriage. And incorporating Christian principles in your life helps you to overcome those challenges that otherwise destroy other marriages. If you think you have problems in a Christian marriage, you don't even want to know what kind of problems arise if you're married to an unbeliever. So marriage is hard work. You see, the question is not, would you be better off with another husband? Or would you be better off with another wife? The question is, as Paul lays it out, would you be better off living as a divorced single person for the rest of your life? Or working out your problems and staying with your spouse. That's really the question that is here because Paul says God didn't want you to get divorced. But if you do, you're single and you've got to deal with that. So that's the question. And too many people make the question, I think I would be happier with somebody else that doesn't even enter in to the equation between two Christian people married. You're either married or if you're divorced, you're single for life, or you're reconciled. you got to get back together and work this out. Question number two. Dear Paul, my wife and I come from a pagan background. I was recently converted to the Christian faith, and I've joined the church at Corinth. However, my wife does not understand my new faith, and she has no desire to become a Christian. She thinks I've lost my mind. And I can't even get her to attend church with me. Since my conversion, I don't feel right participating in the pagan celebrations. And this has caused a great deal of tension in our marriage. I don't know what to do now. We are basically going in two different directions. Now, I know you said... We should not associate with ungodly people. I try to get rid of the pagan idols and the articles out of our house, but my wife won't let me throw them out. I'm worried that God will not be happy for me to be in a relationship with a pagan. I'm further concerned about the influence my wife will have over our children. Should I take the children and leave my wife so we can properly serve the Lord? Now, this situation translates into modern day real easily. You often have a couple that starts off, neither one is a Christian. Somewhere along the line, one of them gets saved. The other one doesn't. And the issue here is that somebody is thinking that now that I've gotten saved, I have a duty, a responsibility to get divorced from this unchristian person, this unsaved person. They're a bad influence on in my life. We just can't get along. And so salvation is my mandate, my excuse. 
And furthermore, even Paul says, I shouldn't have fellowship with these kind of people. So, because of my salvation, I have a right to get divorced. And you know what? If you have been in that kind of a marriage where you're the Christian, the spouse is not, you understand the difficulties that go along with that kind of a marriage. You understand how there are two separate lives and two separate value systems under the same roof. You understand what it means to be alone in your service and worship of the Lord. You understand what it means to fight against somebody who is not judging things by a biblical standard or by a godly standard. There's all kinds of complications that go along with this spiritual imbalance. Now, the New Revised Standard Version gives some clarity to this this passage, which I, I read at the beginning. And it says in the 16th verse, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And then he flips it over, and don't you husbands realize your wives might be saved because of you? So Paul's answer to this situation is that the believer is now a missionary to their own spouse. And even though in their simplistic way of thinking, somebody in this Christian church who was in this situation, unquestionably it existed there because the the church at Corinth was having success in getting people saved out of paganism. And you can just imagine that not always are both the husband and the wife going to get saved. It could be the wife, not the husband, or it could be vice versa. So you're going to end up with this mixed, spiritually mixed marriage and the complications that go along with it. And the temptation to think now that I'm a Christian and they're not, I shouldn't be married to them because after all, if we were starting off together, I shouldn't marry a Christian. Now, I've seen this in my ministry where somebody believes that they have become so spiritually advanced that they no longer are required to be married to this unspiritual, spiritually immature person because they're just so far beyond them. They're a mismatch now. They grew into this situation. I even had a young man in in one of my churches a few years ago that came in and made multiple visits to my office trying to tell me why he had gotten to the point in his life spiritually where he was going to rightfully leave his wife. And they were both in my church. As far as I know, they were both professing Christians. I had no reason to believe otherwise until this young man began to show this side of himself. And I kept giving him biblical answers. Well, you have no biblical leg to stand on to leave your wife and he went home and did his research and came back loaded again with more persuasive arguments about why he should be able to by the third time when it was evident he was not listening to the counsel of the word I threw him out of my office and told him never to come back it was ugly but see he was not listening He was not wanting to hear. All he wanted to do was convince me of his perspective and change my mind. He wasn't willing 
to adapt to the truth of Scripture. So I was done. Now, the difficult part of this passage is what Paul says next. If the unbeliever departs, the believer is not under bondage in such cases. The chances are pretty large, pretty great, that if you have read that passage, if you have talked about that passage or heard it preached on in a church, somebody has probably referred to that passage as the out, the excuse, the pathway out of a marriage. If the unbeliever departs, the believer is not under bondage in such cases. And that's probably the most popular interpretation of that scripture. If you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever leaves you, you are free to remarry. Now, I will let you know there is a strong argument within Christian theology that stands on both sides of that issue. And anybody who knows John Piper, who is a a theologian from the Calvinistic persuasion, stands very strong in saying that you, if you're divorced, it doesn't make any difference why you're divorced, you have no liberty to remarry. And Piper's got quite a following, and he's not the only one, but he's one of the most major names. And then we have another scholar, Craig Keener, who is from the Arminian side, who actually wrote a book called And Marries Another, who says that that scripture does refer to releasing the believer from the bondage of the marriage and allows them to remarry. So you've got two high-caliber, high-power scholars who are looking at the same passage of scripture and one saying that is not what it's saying. You're not released from marriage. You're not released from your obligations. All you are is just released now to be able to serve the Lord, but not released to be able to remarry. And then the other one's saying quite the opposite. If the unbeliever departs, you're no longer under bondage of the marriage contract and you're free to remarry. And actually the arguments of both sides are, are quite compelling. And if it makes any difference to you, then I have an opinion. I'm kind of like Paul. Here's my opinion. I think the Lord is saying that if you have been deserted, that you are freed from your marriage contract. And the reason that I think that is is because I've read both sides of the argument and that's the one that tends to make more sense to me. And the fact is that that along with that, I, I don't understand how God could hold you responsible to your marriage if you were divorced through no fault of your own. If somebody left you and therefore you're doomed and condemned to singleness the rest of your life because somebody did you wrong and that somehow that just doesn't seem to fit in the mercy and the grace of God to me. But they had this situation in the church and we certainly have that situation today. But here's some things we have to understand within this this second part of this passage I read, that one thing that Paul sets forth is remain as you were when God first called you. 
here's two things we have to understand in order to grasp what Paul is trying to say. First of all, Paul is giving advice to people who think they can improve their standing with God by changing their marital status, like the two Christians that are married and the one that says, this is not working. This is like gasoline and matches. We're not getting along. We could both be better off spiritually if we just went on a separate way. So they're going to improve their spiritual status by dissolving the marriage. Or in the other case where the believer is married to the unbeliever and the believer is going to improve his status by dumping this burden that they can't get anything done for the Lord. They can't even drive the paganism out of their own household because they got this unbeliever there and they're stuck with him. So Paul is addressing the issue of people who think that they're going to improve their spiritual status by changing their marital status. The miserable woman in the first letter, the fictitious woman in the first letter, thinks her dysfunctional marriage is draining her spiritually. And she hopes that Paul says, for the sake of your salvation and the sake of your sanity and the sake of your peace of mind, you need to get out of that dead-end marriage. And people who believe that oftentimes keep looking for a church until they find one where the pastor will actually tell them that. Now they found a new church. But Paul doesn't give her that leeway. He says, this is the way you were when you were both saved, when you are both married, you got to continue and stay the course. And then with the man who has the, the, the pagan wife, he got saved and she didn't. Uh, he just said, you know, at whatever station you got saved, well, he got saved and they were married. And he says, whatever station you were at, what, when you were called, stay there. Paul even goes further to suggest even if a single person gets saved, he suggests and says she doesn't, he doesn't, she doesn't have to get married to be the kind of person God wants them to be if they're truly happy being single. So whatever marital status you were in when you were saved, Paul says you are certainly welcome and I encourage you to continue in that stage at least don't change it just because you got saved. Don't think your salvation requires you to change your marital status to please God. You can continue just like you are. Were you saved single? You can please God being single. Were you saved married? You please God staying married. Were you saved in an M and you were married, but the other one didn't get saved? You can please God staying like that. So he just says, whatever stage you were in, when you got saved, you can continue there. And Paul says, but that's my opinion. It's my recommendation. And he says, it's not anything the Lord gave me. And you have to admire Paul for saying that because Paul was in a very powerful, persuasive position. He was able to say things that people took for gospel truth. Well, much of it was gospel truth. He was speaking what became our Bible. But he was honest enough to say in this point, now, and I'm just speculating a little bit, but now if anybody happens to write this down <laughs> and it becomes a Bible, <laughs> please note this is my opinion. 
And just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean this is what God said. So Paul made that distinction from time to time. You have to admire Paul for doing that because he was in a position where he could have been very manipulative with the power he had to be able to teach and to preach. So his message is, whatever station you found you in, stay the course. Now, if Paul sounds a bit biased, it's because he is. He, he prefers, he likes his single status. He prefers his single status. I talked a little bit about this last week. But he's clear in saying that his opinion is not a directive from the Lord. And he uses these two ancient examples from Judaism to illustrate his point. When he says, stay the course, first of all, he uses the illustration of a religious right and then a, an issue, uh, an example of a social issue. The religious right is circumcision. And he says this very strange thing. He says, if you were circumcised, don't seek to change that just because you got saved. Become uncircumcised, which if you think about the process of circumcision, you might be wondering, well, how do you do that? And then he flips that over and says, and if you're uncircumcised when you get saved, don't think you had to get circumcised, which was to this culture, this society, made complete sense to them because there were some Judaizers running around. Circumcision was a major point of religious pride and obedience to God. It was a mark of spirituality. So for, through Judaism for hundreds of years, so now that they're marrying into this new Christianity, there's some Judaizers that are running around and telling the new Gentile believers, you have to be circumcised because that's what we've done and we've known God a lot longer than you've known God. So when Paul says, just because you got saved, you don't have to change that situation. But the flip side of that, Whenever he said, and if you're circumcised, you don't have to seek to be uncircumcised. That's the one that we struggle and say, well, why? How, how does this? But the fact of the matter is, in that day and age, the Romans had their Olympic Games in the nude. And if there were any Jews that participated, then it became very obvious. And I'm not trying to be gross here. You just stick with me. We're all adults, Okay. This is in the Bible, so we're safe. So if there were Jews that participated, it was very obvious that somebody was circumcised and somebody wasn't. And that could put the circumcised men, the Judaistic men, in the minority. And being in the minority, it could have motivated Jewish men to say, boy, am I the weirdo here. I just wish I was like other people. Now, People, you have to understand that principle is very real. It, it doesn't just have to be the issue of circumcision. People are so insecure that they want to be like everybody else. So through a series of, of procedures, they, they could enter into a, a process of a, making the appearance of once again being uncircumcised. Now, as uncomfortable as that is and as weird as that is, it explains a lot by, about why Paul said what he said. Because people, whatever condition they come into Christ, that's one of the things you don't have to change because it has nothing to do with being spiritual. It's all, at this point, nothing but carnal thought and desires 
So he says, don't change that. Then the, the second issue he uses is the issue of slavery. And he says, if you were saved as a slave, don't seek to be free. If you're saved a free man, don't seek to be a slave. And we hear that with, with our 20th, 21st century understanding of the issue of slavery, and we struggle with why would Paul would tell somebody who's a slave who gets saved, just don't worry about it, just keep on being a good slave. Because we have our own understanding culturally about what slavery is, which was not the issue of slavery they had in Paul's day. In Paul's day, he was talking about people who had become bond servants to others to work off a debt or something. And it was not the kind of hideous, heinous human trafficking that we understand as the issue of slavery in our country over its history. So that's one that you, you need to kind of log in your mind so you understand when Paul's talking about slavery, he's not addressing the issue of slavery like we understand it in our culture. So when he tells a slave, just because you got saved, you can't go and tell somebody, I'm a Christian now and you need to set me free because Jesus set me free. No, you've, you've got a contract. You fulfilled a duty. And if you're free, then you can say, you cannot say, just because I became a Christian, I cannot become a bond slave to you because God doesn't want anybody bound. See, those are religious arguments people are using for personal convenience. So Paul uses these two illustrations to drive back home the original thing about marriage. Paul's writings here in the seventh chapter are not about circumcision. They're not about slavery. They're about marriage. But he uses those two examples to come back to the original point. Whatever state you were saved in, don't change your marital status to think you are improving your spiritual state with God. Question number three. And this will be from verses 25 through 39. I will not read those verses. But he starts off talking to the single and eventually ends up talking about the widows. Dear Paul, I'm a single adult. I get advice from everyone. Some of my friends keep trying to tell me to get married. And some tell me to enjoy my freedom as a single person because marriage changes everything. I'm not really against being married. I just don't want to get married because everybody expects me to. And I get conflicting advice. Some tell me I'm going to be miserable being single all my life. And others tell me I'll have more problems than I ever hoped for if I get married. I don't know what to do. Signed, perplexed. Paul says, dear perplexed, considering the perilous times that we're living in, if you're single, I'd recommend you not take on any more personal responsibilities. Now, you have to understand, when Paul wrote this, and the oppression under the Roman tyranny and, and, and the, the political upheaval that was happening. And you remember whenever Jesus prophesied about Jerusalem being compassed about and being destroyed and how the Romans rolled through Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? In the era when there was, when Paul was writing this, there was, there was political turmoil. And under those conditions, when somebody said, 
What do you think, Paul? I, I don't know. I, I'm getting conflicting advice here. I haven't made up my mind. Is it better for me to marry or not to marry? And Paul said, you know, times are volatile right now. Do you really want to take on the responsibility of marriage and a family at this time? And so that could apply to other eras when people are considering, should I get married, should I not get married? I don't know. It depends on what kind of climate you're living in. We could get in our nation in such a situation that could be so hard, so difficult. Uh, if, if there would be a insur political insurrection, there'd be civil war. The last thing the person ought to be thinking about is, I wonder if I ought to get married right now. Because that's a lot of responsibility and, and, and suddenly the care and the protection of somebody else. So I'm just saying that because Paul said, sometimes there's circumstances that dictate whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to enter into this. And in their situation, he said, you know, right now, things are kind of hot and volatile. And he said, I'm not sure I could really recommend that for you. But he said, that's just my opinion. He said, now, if you choose to get married, you're not sinning, but be forewarned of the responsibility. Don't get married for frivolous reasons. If you get married, you have to be willing to accept the responsibilities that go along with that. You're no longer concerned about yourself. If you have another person in your life, you have to take them into consideration in everything you do. If you don't like sharing your life, forget marriage. If you like all the attention yourself, forget marriage. If you don't like serving other people, forget marriage. You don't have any business if you think life is all about you. If you think you're going to get married so somebody can worship you, forget the idea. You get married because you serve somebody else. But whether you get married or whether you don't get married, that's your decision is what Paul says. And the fact is, it's up to you. If you choose to get married, you haven't sinned. If you choose not to get married, you haven't sinned. It's really your choice. There's only one stipulation. You must honor God in all things you do, no matter what you choose. That's the bottom line. Not whether you're married, not whether you're not married, but are you honoring God and making him number one? He says, furthermore, to any widow who is thinking about getting remarried, he said, you're free to do that. So you see, divorce just based on convenience is not allowable by God's plan. You are not free to remarry if you're divorced just because you decided to switch to a, a new wife, a new husband. But if your spouse dies, you're freed from that. So like one pastor down in Alabama told me, you cannot get divorced. God is not going to forgive you for taking upon yourself to get divorced and change partners. Now, murder is a different thing. Enough said. Paul says to the widows, if you want to get married again, 
The only requirement I have is marry a believer. But he said, if you want my personal opinion, don't remarry. It's up to you. My only question is, you're going to have to start all over training a new husband. It took you 40, 50 years to get the last one about half decent. What woman in the right mind wants to enter that? I think there's a lot of wisdom in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians about the issue of marriage that the church has ignored, conveniently ignored for too long. Marriage is an honorable institution. It's, it's, an inst, it, it's God's intentions for people to enter into a lifelong commitment one to another. It's God's intentions for mature people to find a way to work it out. Children and parents can get in a squabble, but if they're going to continue to have any relationship for the rest of their life, they have to somehow work that out. Children don't get divorced from parents. Parents don't get divorced from children. At least they didn't used to. Things are getting crazy these days. So in the same way that you, you'll always be your children's parent and they'll always be your child, you just have to work it out. Unfortunately, we look at marriage differently. If we get at odds with each other, we just want to sign the papers and go our separate way and start over again. But we are seeing the destruction of the family today because we're not honoring God and his word and his commitment. Ann and I will soon be married 40 years. I think we'll make it. And it hasn't been easy. But Ann just said this morning, she said, I'm so glad that we survived and our marriage stayed intact. And she said, our children get to come home to the same house to see mom and dad. How important is that? It's indescribable. And for those who are not so fortunate and you, you ended up in a, in a circumstance, a situation that you're not as blessed as, as, as I am and my, my wife, I can say that God has grace and God has forgiveness and he has a way of healing and giving you a new start. But all I can say is, whatever mistakes you've made in the past, don't do it again. Make a commitment to God. Just draw a line in the sand. This is the place where you can't go back, but you can certainly go forward. And you can honor God in your life. And if you made bad choices, why don't you analyze those bad choices? Why don't you do an autopsy and figure out why something died? and do it better, and get on with life, get on with God. Like I say, the demise of the marriage has led to the demise of our nation. As the marriage dissolves, our culture and our nation dissolves. I am promoting godly, lifelong marriages. I'm promoting that whatever marriage you're in now, no matter what your past, make it a godly marriage. Give it to God. 
start from here and do it right. Bow your heads.